Portions of the following program may contain pre-recorded material. Morning, glory, America. Bonjour, high Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt inside the Beltway. Pray for the Americans who are held hostage in Afghanistan. This is the first time I've been back live with Dr. Larry Arne on the Hillsdale Dialogue since we began the Lincoln-Douglas debate replay. For seven blessed weeks, I left Dr. Arne alone, and we were able to replay a series of, of conversations we had for the Hillsdale Dialogue from six years ago. Dr. Arne, your, your vacation from the burden of doing the Hugh Hewitt Show is over. You've got to come back now. I'm almost fully recovered. Well, you know, I'm amazed by how many people loved the Lincoln-Douglas debates. And I went out and actually bought that recording by uh, Dreyfus and Strathern that you told me about. It, it was magnificent. It really is an astonishing bit of American history. Yeah, well, that's the first great mass debate in American history. And, you know, in a way, the last, because we don't do it very well anymore. But I, I always thought the, the number 30,000 is significant because that's how many came to that at the peak. Uh, that's how many came to hear George Whitfield, a uh, great awakening preacher during the time of the American Revolution. And we have that confirmed by Ben Franklin, who stepped it off to measure the crowd. He didn't believe there could be that many. And uh, that's one reason I thought in 2016 that it was significant that those Trump rallies got to be so big. They're about that size, too. Well, two weeks ago, I had Chris Wallace on, who moderated the last pres- uh, the, the last year's presidential debate. And uh, Chris and I were talking about debates, and, and his audience for his Trump-Biden debate was 80 million people. And we talked about the president's criticism of Wallace and Wallace's response, et cetera. But I, I absolutely believe that the debate commission, you know, what, it, what is it that Cato the Elder used to say, Carthage must be destroyed? Yeah. Whatever that is in Latin should be the Presidential Debate Commission should be destroyed because they've made it into a mockery now, Larry. Arnold. Yeah, I think the uh, so, so I, I know a couple of people who might be running for president, and uh, I give them advice that they should make a pact first among the the uh, candidates in their party that they're going to control the debates, and they should make them sensible. That is to say, you get a minute to talk. And somebody gets a minute to answer. And, and uh, the way it is now, uh, the host is the star. I mean, I, I was uh, completely disgusted uh, with the way they, they like, the, the moderator is like a rock star. And then, you know, they're just promoting themselves, these news organizations. And so they would moderate. They would interview, like uh, Chris Wallace in the afternoon before the debate. Are you ready? It's like a football game, right? Are you ready for the big event? You know, and how do you, how what are your feelings at this stage, right? Well, those guys are not supposed to be the story. This is how the American people choose their government. Well, that what Chris said to me is is exactly what you just said. We're not supposed to be the story, but he said we're supposed to be like the referee in an NFL game. Uh, no one knows your name. But in fact, the fact that we give interviews, and I have to put myself in this category because I've done this a few times now, the fact that we give interviews before the event proves that we're not and that it's become a media event. My suggestion, I'm going to moderate the Ohio Senate debate in a couple of weeks in Columbus where Republicans, there are a half dozen serious Republicans, Josh Mandel and 
and Jane Timken and Ernie Marino and uh, J.D. Vance, and, and I think there are a couple more. I may be forgetting them. All going to come down to Columbus, and I'm going to moderate a debate. And my objective is to be invisible. Uh, but also, with, with, with multi-parties, it's very hard to get in between them. But what Lincoln and Douglas did, there were only two parties, and they had no moderator at all. That's what's so amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that's – well, and see, they, they had uh, – uh, there's a few places in Lincoln-Douglas debates where they negotiate the rules in front of the audience and explain that they're changing something and why. And, uh, you know, once they take a break for dinner, Lincoln didn't want to talk when they were exhausted. And, uh, and you know, they, they worked that out, and they were the players, right? And that's as should be. Uh, you know, they – and, you know, Lincoln, he got – you know, the, the opening guy got 45 minutes, and then the second speaker got an hour. And then they had rebuttal and sur-rebuttal. The whole thing took about two and a half hours. I and think people, the first one was an hour, an hour and a half, and a half hour, and then they changed it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And it was, you know, and those guys could make use of that time, see. And I think uh, five minutes, ten minutes, right, something like that, so you can put an argument together. And, uh, and, and you know the other guy's going to get a chance to try to do that, too. And that's how you find out whether they can think. Well, next week we're going to begin a conversation with Glenn Elmers, a character about whom I want to ask you in a second, about his new book, The Soul of Politics, in which Lincoln figures prominently, as does, of course, Harry Jaffa, your teacher. Uh, Glenn's book comes out. But in between the seven weeks on the Lincoln-Douglas debate and a series of conversations with Glenn about Harry Jaffa, Leo Strauss, and political theory in general, I wanted to take a pause with you because we're in a crisis. And, and I, I don't know how else to describe thousands of Americans and American allies abandoned. I don't think we've ever done this. Is there ever, in, in your study of American and British history, and you were part of the official Churchill biography team for so long, you've just completed Martin Gilbert, the official Churchill biographer's papers. Did anyone ever abandon that many free citizens, civilians, to the enemy? Well, the only thing I can think of that's close to it is 1975 in Vietnam, uh, and that, you know, that story was, again, a foolish story. I, you know, I, I believe, by the way, Afghanistan and Vietnam were f- foolish undertakings from the beginning, and that, uh, but uh, that's a long story. But in, in uh, you know, they, we, we, we persevered with the Vietnamese, and we got a peace that guaranteed the safety of the South. And he explicitly acknowledged our authority to go in there if the North Vietnamese violated the the the, the, the treaty. Well, by the time they did that, Nixon was gone, and the Congress was in control of the government, and we just let them die. And it wouldn't have been that hard to stop them from taking South Vietnam. Well, this thing with Afghanistan, it wouldn't have been that hard to have an orderly retreat. But what you can't do is let the Taliban set the timetable. In fact, you can't even announce a firm timetable because you just, you know, it's a military operation. It's like, just think, you know, if you've ever moved house, what's that like, you know? And you have to take, you have to decide the order in which you take things, right? And we abandoned that air base and gave it to the Taliban before everybody was out. And, you know, the whole thing was just, uh, and, you know, you could take some time 
I mean, the, the government of the United States, by the way, is it's, it's uh, a, an, an odd, a terrible mixture of dangerous and incompetent because it's, you know, reaching everywhere to get control of us. And on the other hand, it can't get its troops home. And, and you know, uh, what happens to generals when they let things like that happen is they get fired. No one has been fired. No one has been blamed. And that's, it is just shameful. The, the, you just put something I want to remember. The combination of, of powerful and incompetent is a dangerous one. Because it, that is, you can be incompetent and not be powerful, and it doesn't much matter, or you can be competent and powerful. That's a little bit scary. But to be incompetent and powerful is dang, dang dangerous to everybody. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, uh, I, I've got to the place now where, they, you know, they're going to refocus on domestic terror. That means us, you know, and and they can't fight the ones over there, so they're going to focus on us, and uh, that you know that's not going to go well for them, by the way, and not going to go well for the country either. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, Afghanistan. You know, you mentioned Churchill at the beginning. You know, Winston Churchill fought there, and I did not know that. I knew he was on the Indian frontier, but I didn't know it reached Afghanistan. Well, his his first book. He fought there in 1897, and of course he immediately published a book about it in 1898. <laughs> and it tells all the problems, right? It's just, it's just awesome to read. It's called The Story of the Malacan Field Force. And the Malacan Pass is a pass that divides Afghanistan from Pakistan. Of course, there was no Pakistan then. It divided Afghanistan from India. And if you read that book, you know, you just see all of the troubles. Uh, I, and, you know, when we went there, there is a division, you know, because in American government, in the American government, there's always a division. And, and, you know, we're never settled. You know, after 9-11 for a time, we were. In the Second World War, we were. For much of the 19th century, we were. But it's... Uh, uh, Here's a passage from Churchill. Hold on, hold till after the break. I want to come back to the Malkin Field Force and Churchill. It's applicability to America held hostage 2.0, which is underway in Afghanistan. Stay tuned, America. Dr. Larry Arn is my guest, president of Hillsdale College, all things Hillsdale, at hillsdale.edu. Great sponsor of this hour and of the show. Stay to the usual show. There's a lot of spin on the news out there. Where do you hear the truth? Right here, as soon as Hugh Hewitt returns. This is The Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt, the Hilltail Dialogue. Last radio hour of the week uh, is back. Although it's not the last radio hour of this week. I'm going to do something in the next hour, so we're playing it in the second hour today. Dr. Larry Arn is my guest, and for seven weeks we haven't been making new ones because uh, we were using the Lincoln-Douglas debates. But we're back, and in those seven weeks, Afghanistan went from being a stable outpost of American and Western liberalism at least half of the country, to the darkness of medievalism in seven weeks. And Dr. Arn was about to read a passage from Winston Churchill, who fought in Afghanistan in the 19th century. So it's 130 years ago or 125 years ago. What did he write, Dr. Arn? Well, first of all, uh, you should fix in your mind the topography of Afghanistan, because the word for it is impossible. 
it's, uh, it's, it runs up to the Himalayas, the greatest mountain range on Earth, and sort of roughly from uh, northeast to southwest, it's divided up uh, about two-thirds of the country into a series of high mountains with valleys in between. And the villages are down in the valleys, sometimes partway up the hill, and they might be five miles from each other, but it can take six days to get there because you either got to go around the mountains or over them. Uh, and that divides the country into tribes. And the tribes are very warlike, and they always have been, right? They're just tremendous fighters. Churchill had great respect for them, although he said, the strength of civilization without its mercy is a line from him describing them. Uh, he says, uh, in, in Afghanistan, it is a roadless, broken, and undeveloped country, an absence of any strategic points, a well-armed enemy with great mobility and modern rifles who adopts guerrilla tactics. The results are that the troops, let's say the British troops, can march anywhere they want and do anything they want except catch the enemy. And every time they go marching, they lose some people. Well, if you, if you read that very great book, War, by Sebastian Younger, about American troops fighting in the Karengal Valley, which is, you know, a tough place up in the mountains there in Afghanistan, and nobody ever goes there, right? And we put three different units there, and they operated there for about two years, and they operated very effectively. But it was hell. And the question is, what what were they doing there? Because finally we wore out and came home. And, you know, we killed many more of them than they killed of us. But the the manner of the of the battle was they built these they built these outposts that uh, you know, looming above them are mountains. And they have to put metal up around the the place where they live and they live in the heat and resupplies by helicopter. And and you know, nothing'll happen for a long time. And then all of a sudden, everything breaks loose, and they've got to summon themselves and get their weapons ready and fight back. And they always win the battles, by the way. But that can happen any time. And when they go on patrol, they usually don't find anybody. Or if they do, they walk into an ambush. And they use, uh, there's a good film made about all this, kind of a documentary-style film called Restrepo. And Restrepo is the medic with this force up there, American force up there in, uh, in the Korengal Valley, and he was killed. And they, the, the, the men who served with him have never forgotten that. And they, There's also know, Jake Tapper's wonderful book, The Outpost, about forward operating base Keating. Same right. sort of thing, where we, it's, it's now covered in dust. It's been evacuated. It's, it's gone the way of the Russians and the British and Alexander the Great. And... It was doomed. Maybe it was doomed. But were we doomed to do it this badly, the exit, Larry Arn? we got well, a minute we, to break. You know, there was a division. The, the, the word is, and, you know, I have some, let's call it eyewitness testimony about this, and you never know for sure if it's true. But uh, Rumsfeld and his crowd, they thought we were going to go in there and use leverage and join one side, the people who hate the Taliban, of whom there are many, and help them destroy the Taliban, and then let them go about their lives. And maybe, if you keep anything there, keep an airbase, 
and you can keep that out in the desert in the southern part where you can't approach it very easily. But that that was changed in the middle. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the impact of that change because, indeed, there is no airborne base, except there is a new Chinese air base, that we are told, as the Chinese are taking over Bagram, we are told. Stay tuned. Larry Arn returns on the Hillsdale Dialogue. Non-stop, action-packed information. Blitz. The Hugh Hewitt Show is coming right back. Welcome back. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Dr. Larry Arn is the president of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale are found at hillsdale.edu. If you want to listen to all of the Hillsdale dialogues, almost a decade's worth of them now are collected at hughforhillsdale.com. We don't often repeat Hillsdale Dialogues. We did for the last seven weeks because you can't improve on perfect. And the series of Lincoln-Douglas debate discussions were about as close to perfect radio as could be done. So we just jammed them into the morning hour for people who'd never heard them before. But now we're back doing original Hillsdale Dialogues. But while we were away uh, with the repurposing of the old one, Afghanistan went from an outpost of the West to barbarianism overnight. And in the course of that, thousands of American citizens, legal residents, and SIV-eligible Afghans were condemned to the brutal care of the Taliban, and now we have a hostage crisis. So, Dr. Arn, you were back in 2002 to three when Rumsfeld v. I guess I will say Powell split the Bush administration. It might have been Bush v. Cheney between strike and get out and leave an airbase behind and strike, stay, and build the nation and the latter went out, and it wasn't a wise choice. Well, I don't think so. And, and you know, uh, the Chinese have an advantage over us in operating in there like that. They're tyrants. <laughs> that yes, means, they'll kill everybody. Well, they probably won't. They'll just make deals to, you know, with the worst and the strongest. And, you know, what, what's going on here? This is a great... Well, let, let me... Let me, let me argue, they'll kill everyone who doesn't go along with the deals that they make. Let me That's put right. it that way. That's right. And see, uh, it, you know, if you, if, you, if you look at this terrain, at, at this situation there, India is the, the, the strategic fact out there, right? India is a modernizing country. It's a, it's a parliamentary democracy. It's very friendly to us. It has emerged from a long flirtation with the Soviet Union, and Pakistan was China's ally, you know, for 40 years. And now it's run by an inspiring man named Modi, and they've survived the COVID, it looks like, and they're, and, you know, they're, they're, they're a growing country. Well, in the northwest of China, I'm sorry, of India, that's where all the Muslims lived. In, or, well, the, the big majority of the Muslims lived up there. And, you know, the Muslims and the Hindus never got along. Uh, one of the reasons Winston Churchill said we ought not to, Brit- Britain ought not to leave India is because there'll just be incredible strife between them. And indeed and, there was when right. the British so, flag came down. A million that, people were killed. That's right. And, and Pakistan and India separated. Right, they're separate countries now, and one is a dominant Hindu country, and one is a dominant 
Muslim country, and they've had tension between them from the time of the separation, and they're both nuclear-armed now. So Afghanistan is the pathway from northern parts on the other side of the Himalayas, uh, China and Russia, down into that great basin that India is in. And Pakistan is now something like a buffer, except Pakistan has really been a friend of the Afghan tribesmen for, forever. Sure. Even when we were pouring money in there, which we still are, I think. So the thing is, China is going to have an air base in striking distance of India. And China is having, uh, uh, you know, uh, strife with India right now. I'm saying both sides of, of India, because they already have air bases on the uh, border between India and China. Now they're going to have them flanked on both sides. Yeah, and Chinese and Indian troops skirmish up in yep. the mountains uh, to the east of where we're talking about. So what's going on here that matters as a global fact is that, 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 uh, China is extending its range, and its range is vast now. But doesn't it also matter, though, Dr. Arn, and, and tell me I'm wrong if I don't, that America's humiliation is underway. Uh, the, the, the Iranian hostage crisis was the low point of the 70s. Uh, a hapless, feckless giant and Jimmy Carter running it. And now we have a hostage crisis many times larger than that, though less covered by elite media. So some people pretend it doesn't exist, but I refuse to go along with that. We have a hostage crisis much greater, and we're feckless and helpless, and we're begging the Qataris to help us. Doesn't that ha isn't that a fact on the ground, too, that America won't help itself, can't, is paralyzed? Yeah, and that's, you know, that's a feature of uh, any institution that, attempts to do everything, especially if it has the habit of trying to live other people's lives for them, what will happen is it will become dangerous and incompetent. And so the things that the government is supposed to do, it's supposed to be effective. It's supposed to be cheap because you can't have a liberal society if everything's in the government, right? There's no room for any of us to do anything. And, and when that begins to collapse, then the government which was, you know, very good at the, at the things it was supposed to do, becomes not very good at anything. And, you know, I mean, look at the COVID policy. Uh, so what I think is, you know, my opinion about what should have been done, and it's by my opinion all along, and that's because I've read Winston Churchill and some other stuff, is that we're never going to make Afghanistan into a democracy. And see, that's our problem, right? We can't just rule people by force. That's not what we do. China will do that. They do that to their own people. But, but the second thing is you can, however, exercise leverage, and that means we've got sophisticated weapons. And, you know, what is our main interest in Afghanistan? We don't want people training there to fly planes to an, in, into our buildings or, you know, disrupting India. And so you can control that without having to control, or you can combat that. Whether we can control that or not is an open question now. But now, but now we are worse off on that than we were 20 years ago, because if we attempt to combat people training to fly weapons and uh, planes into our buildings, they'll take an American out and shoot them or behead them like Danny Pearl. 
And one would have thought after 20 years, we would have had the good sense to get Americans out. Larry Arndt. That is my biggest objection to this whole fiasco. Trump says it was a conditions-based withdrawal. Mike Pompeo said it. Tom Cotton has said it. We would never have left if they were taking over the country. And Trump said on this program he threatened the head of the Taliban. With Basically, Trump said he threatened a nuclear war, a nuclear reprisal. He didn't say it out loud, but everyone got the, the message, what Trump said he said to the to the Taliban, if you screw around with us, we'll just hit you harder than you've ever been hit in your, in your life. And they believed him because he was Donald Trump. Now we've got thousands of Americans where they weren't there in 19, in 2001, Dr. Arndt. Thousands of Americans. That's it. We have no leverage. And they're, you know, they're going to, and the Chinese are very sophisticated. And if they're taking over our air base, isn't that a shame? Uh, then... They're going to give those guys good advice too. You know, they're they're, they're going to be competent, and uh, and we're not. And see, another thing is that we we you know we won the Second World War. You know, we think well, we did, we did. We were very important to winning it. But we're the greatest nation on earth, right? And we're a power now, and that's not necessarily good for a people because we get to we 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 grow up and we're like rich kids. We have this legacy, and we never really earned any money. And so we thought, I mean, Woodrow Wilson thought, and George W. Bush participating in his, channeling his spirit, thought, we can build democracy in Afghanistan. And the trouble with that is, democracy is something people do for themselves, right? And so that's hard to make happen unless they want to. Now, in the case of Germany and and Japan, you, you have to understand the difference, right? They attacked us, and we leveled the place. We, we really did clear away just about everything that was there. And Germany, of course, had a rich legacy of civilization, and, you know, Conrad Adenauer, who who ran Germany immediately after the Second World War, he was a great man. And what he did was appeal to the better angels of the German nature, and they, you know, returned to their civilized ways. The Japanese sort of had to start over, but they did, right? And that's because the greatest war effort in history cleared the way for that. Well, we, we can't do that all the time. We can't do that everywhere or all the time. And so what you're looking for is leverage, right? You're looking, uh, if you just read Winston Churchill or any great thinker about these things, strategy is a synonym for economy, right? You, you, the strategic thing to do is the thing that gets you what you must have at the lowest possible cost. And, and we have not, boy, have we not done that. No, when we I come mean, back, and we've uh, ended up with nothing. See, worse yeah. than nothing, we've ended up with Americans in in the Taliban's hand, which was not the case twenty years ago. When we come back, a different subject for our week back with Dr. Arn, uh, the Wall Street Journal reporting during our time off on the crisis among American boys. Don't go anywhere. Dr. Arn tells us about that when we return to the Hugh Hewitt Show. I do want to tell you all that um, before I come back with. Uh, Dr. Arn, that that tweet 
that I put out about the United Arab Emirates and Israeli rescuing the uh, few dozen Afghan athletes and robotics team members and human rights workers, uh, sometimes something catches the imagination of the public. It has been, it's created 300,000 impressions on Twitter. It's been retweeted 1,700 times, uh, or liked 1,700 times and retweeted hundreds of times. I, I'm just astonished. And you know what that tells me? That tells me that people love courage. They really love courage. It's one of the reasons why the Hillsdale Dialogues works. We're often talking about big things like courage. And all of the Hillsdale Dialogues are collected podcast form. Hugh for Hillsdale.com. Everything Hillsdale is at Hillsdale.edu. Portions of the Hugh Hewitt Show. This is the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Well, Dr. Arn, who's my guest from the Hillsdale College, president of Hillsdale College on this Hillsdale Dialogue, was away, and we were playing our Lincoln Douglas series. The Wall Street Journal came out with a story on September the 6th titled, A Generation of American Men Give Up on College. I Just Feel Lost. And it begins by saying men are abandoning higher education in such numbers that they now trail female college students by record levels. At the close of the 2021 academic year, women made up 59.5% of all college students, men 40.5%. This is a crisis. Dr. Arn, first of all, is that Hillsdale College's experience? <laughs> no. Uh, we have the same number of boys and girls, and they're admitted on the same academic standards. And we so don't why is to... the rest of American college? I mean, the, the numbers are startling. I didn't know this. I believe the journal's reporter. It's by Douglas Belkin, good reporter. What has happened that the rest of America's colleges have fallen into a demographic pit? If you read, you know, first of all, uh, men are, they're being suppressed, right? So if you read, you know, every, diversity, uh, all these colleges have these diversity, inclusion, whatever it is, offices. And the, fir the first effect of that is, Instead of emphasizing what people have in common, their humanity, which is the basis of college education, you emphasize accidental factors about, uh, about them, their color, their sex, stuff like that. But then the second thing is, because this, this, uh, this movement is actually a weapon of, of what has been thought to be dominant, uh, then uh, you could just put, when they come out with orders, about things they're going to do in these colleges, they should all be label, labeled boys beware, right? And, and so boys are not welcome. Well, I, I was, you, you've, cut me, you've cut me to the quick because that's where I was going to go. Yeah. Boys are smart. Boys don't go where they're not wanted, and they don't go where they don't learn anything that will allow them to make a living to support a family. I believe that's a deep, deeply ingrained instinct among men is that they're going to have to support a family if they're going to be true men. And if they're going to be true men and college wastes four years, many quotes in this story about boys saying, well, I can make 15 bucks an hour at the Amazon warehouse. Why would I go to remote college? Is that part of it? Oh, yeah. Well, you're not, you know, I mean, uh, you know, the code around here is we, we encourage the men to become manly. And one of the, there are many precepts what that means, but one of the things it means is it is unmanly ever to force a woman in any respect. 
right? Uh, you shouldn't really force them in either, but they'll punch you in the nose and you can punch them back if you want to. Uh, but in other words, the responsibilities that are theirs are important. They're, they're not more important than the responsibilities that are women's. They're less important. But the responsibilities that are women's are also male responsibilities. They're supposed to help take care of them, and they've got to do their work, and we're to help them. And in the end, in a good marriage, one help they help each other, right? Uh, so that uh, it, you know, we're we're just uh, we're oppressing them, and they're. Well, you know, had you read this story? Were you aware of these numbers? No, well, I knew about the numbers. Yeah, the numbers are all over the place. I mean, we sort of marvel at our numbers because we, you know, we just we we actually get a few more applications from boys than girls. And right now, boys outnumber girls at Hillsdale College by a little bit. You know, I had a, um, I had a friend, I have a friend who, do what, who did what you do now, was captain of a college for a long time, president of a college. And he told me that you couldn't get to the 60-40 number or your college would collapse. That if the women became a 60-40 dominant, it would collapse. Well, they're all 60-40 dominant now. Well, one of the things that happens in college is that, you know, girls and boys are interested in each other. And, uh, you know, they, uh, how do you navigate that? And especially in the academic world, the rules, such as they are, are so obscure. And, you know, it, uh, here, you know, we have sexual conflicts here sometimes, right? Bound to have, right? We don't have very many, but, but uh, uh, we're, you know, we're very tough on any use of force. On, As on you should be. Or alcohol, you know. As you should that, be. Right? And, and on the other hand, you have to find out the facts. And you usually can. Uh, you know, because people around here tell the truth. And That's an amazing thing. That, I, 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 I want to end on that. I have an no. experience of sitting down with a student in an office and asking them a direct question and having them lie to me. You see, that is, um, and so to everyone, repair to hillsdale.edu. When we come back next week, we're going to talk about this tangentially with Glenn Elmers. By the way, do you, do you know this scoundrel? Is he up there at Hillsdale, too? Elmers? Yeah. Well, no, Glenn is, uh, Glenn is younger than I am, as is everyone else, and he worked at the Claremont Institute for me for 15 years. Uh, then he went into the government. And I dragged him out of the government to write this book. So we have helped support this book, but he doesn't work at Hillsdale College. Well, this book, The Soul of Politics, is what we talk about next week and for a few weeks. And you will not want to miss that. The Hillsdale Dialogues are back live. Thank you, America. Stay tuned to the Hugh Hewitt Show. When you absolutely, positively need the truth, this is where you turn. This is The Hugh Hewitt Show.